This is CHUO 89.1 FM. Welcome to this week's episode of The Mosaic, your weekly show highlighting the voices of the community. Here, we guide you through today's social issues, introduce you to changemakers, and keep in touch with the arts, music, and events of the city. You can expect extensive research, in-depth analysis, and discussion. From CHUO's news team, this is The Mosaic. Today, we hear from the Ottawa Public Library about access to books and the freedom to read among North American crackdowns against queer, disabled, and racialized stories. Then we hear from religious studies scholar Norman Cornett about weaponizing religion in Israel's assault on Gaza as Ramadan approaches. Then we discuss the war in Ukraine as it enters its third year of combat. And finally, we'll hear about a rapidly worsening water crisis plaguing Mexico. Stick around. I'm Lauren Rolston, and we've got all that and more coming up on The Mosaic. So last week I was reading one of the Peter Rabbit books with my son, who's two and a half, and I came across uh, a section where the farmer takes out a strap and straps Peter Rabbit for his bad behavior. And I was like, oh my goodness, my values have come home to roost now, haven't they? So I was like, you know, there are two ways to handle that, right? There's one way, which is to put away Peter Rabbit and say, I'm not going to read it to him because it's going to freak him out. And there's another way, which is just kind of like at a very basic level, even at two and a half, say, okay, so what he means here is that he's punishing Peter Rabbit and he's punishing him by hitting him, which is not really a nice thing to do. Let's talk about that a little bit. Mm -hmm. And to be honest, like in two years, he's going to be on the playground and he's probably going to hear worse things than a farmer (laughs) strapping Peter Rabbit. So I'm better maybe personally, I think, to start building those skills now about engaging with things that we maybe don't agree with anymore and explaining why maybe they were considered to be socially acceptable at one time, but they aren't anymore. That's Alexandra Yero, Program Manager at the Ottawa Public Library. Today, we're going to talk about the freedom to read and decisions to control the kind of information we have access to in books. Books are being pulled off of shelves in libraries and schools for an extensive list of reasons, many more complex than depicting the beating of Peter Rabbit. So last week, the Ottawa Public Library, or OPL as you'll hear it mentioned, held Freedom to Read Week. They opened their doors for in-person and online panels with esteemed authors to discuss censorship and intellectual freedom. Here to share more about Freedom to Read Week and the challenges seen in libraries across Canada is my conversation with OPL's Alexandra Yero. So Freedom to Read Week is an annual event celebrated in Canada and organized by the Book and Periodical Council of Canada. So basically, it's an opportunity to talk about the importance of free expression in Canada. And in our case, we see it as an opportunity to kind of highlight the role of public libraries to protect and promote the freedom to read and think and have access to a really broad range of ideas and information, which is a cornerstone of democracy. Mm -hmm. And the library celebrated this week by having speakers like uh, journalist John Ibbotson and author Lawrence Hill speak. Uh, Can you tell me some of the key takeaways from events like that? Yeah, sure. So we really, um, in the past few years, I'm going to take a little bit of a step back and then I'll come back specifically to the talks. Our board and uh, staff at OPL have really reaffirmed their commitment to intellectual freedom. And part of that has been kind of developing 
new programs and resources to make sure that we kind of weave conversations about the free exchange of ideas into all of the things that we do. And so part of that was a lot of really great activities for Freedom to Read Week last week, as you mentioned. So the two in-person and live-streamed author talks with John Ibbotson and Lawrence Hill. Both of these authors have faced either challenges or, you know, have been involved in journalism that perhaps is contentious sometimes. So Lawrence Hill had his book, in fact, a book cover of his burned in the Netherlands many years ago. So we wanted to have folks come and talk at OPL who had experiences protecting and upholding the freedom of expression in Canada. And that's really what they focused on in their talks. They were very thoughtful talks. They touched on kind of the history of censorship, some of the well-meaning intentions that people have and, you know, really strong convictions that people have when they want to get a particular book or idea banned or censored. But then, you know, the reasons why this is sometimes not the best reaction to an idea that you disagree with or even an idea that you find really dangerous and harmful. Mm -hmm. And Lawrence Hill, particularly um, author of The Book of Negroes, there was a huge um, outcry about that. Can we talk a little bit more about that, like cover burning and um, rewrites to his work? Yeah. So from what I understand and from what I remember reading at the time, too, not just from his talk with us last week, um, the Book of Negroes takes its title, right? And I, I remember reading it when it came out from a specific historical document that, that actually was called that. And so, you know, while the term Negroes has fallen out of favor in many circles for very good reasons, it was in the title referring to a specific document um, that formed the basis of the books and, you know, told a kind of historical genealogical perspective. So, you know, because that term is no longer really socially acceptable or used, many people were really uncomfortable with the title. From what I understand from hearing Lawrence Hill speak last week, a lot of those folks who got in touch with him or got in touch with him through his publisher had not actually read the book, so didn't know what it was really about. He told us uh, last week that he often would reach out to people who wrote to him and say, you know, can I talk to you a little bit about the book? And for the most part, people were not interested in engaging with him. They were just really upset about the title and were intending to take whatever action they were going to take, regardless of what he had to say, frankly. So he's saying it's based on historical documentation. This is evidence. This is a piece of work chronicling something that's actually happened. Yeah, exactly. So it was a, the Book of Negroes was a book about specific groups of Black Americans who immigrated to Canada after the American Revolution. And so their immigration records were documented broadly. And that was compiled in a book that was called the Book of Negroes. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it speaks to the broader issue, which is that things that folks challenge in books or in other things, particularly in public libraries, often relate to the language that's used. And sometimes sometimes that language can be antiquated and there can be very good reasons for using that language, whether it's because of a historical document, as in Lawrence Hill's case, or because a particular character in a novel comes from a particular time period where that word was common usage. And so often folks who get in touch with us are really uncomfortable with that language because they feel it's it's stereotypical or it's racist, but it reflects a particular historical period. And our, our practice is not to censor unless something is found to be illegal in Canada. And so we'll make information available to people. We don't know why they might be reading it, right? They might be reading it to find out more about that historical period, not necessarily because they agree with a particular author or character in a book. And so we, we make stuff available that is part of people's free expression in Canada and their rights in Canada. Mm -hmm. And I, I also kind of know a little bit about like Roald Dahl just also had mm. some of his works uh, refurbished because of the antiquated language, like you said. But it was it was changes that people were kind of raising their eyebrows at. So I want to get 
to asking you about what some of the issues around censorship are like in Canada today, whether it's about that antiquated language or whether it's about approaching views that are different from your own. Um, If you could tell me a little bit more about what we're looking at here. So, I mean, broadly speaking, there have been trends across North American public libraries, so Canada and the U.S., where we've seen increasing challenges to material that's in public libraries. So I can kind of talk about the library context. I think we all know there's a broader social context, which sometimes follows the same trend, sometimes moves in slightly different directions. Reporting from last year, 2023, was actually reporting on 2022 data, if you're following me. But the Canadian Federation of Library Associations reported like the highest number of incidents of challenges since they started tracking in the early 2000s. So that's 2022 data. We're not totally in line with that, but also our data is a bit more up to date. So last year, 2023, here at OPL, we received seven challenges to material in the collection, which is kind of on par with like the average we've had in the last decade. But we have had some spikes. We had a spike in the past two years, 2021 and 2022. So now it's coming back. It remains to be seen whether, you know, like we're going to continue on that kind of same average as we used to have, or if it's going to go up and down based on specific things that we see in society. Broadly speaking, challenges to material in North America relate to perspectives that are positive towards marginalized groups, particularly perspectives that are positive towards the LGBTQ community, um, and also kind of content that could be described as racist. So getting to your earlier point, a lot of that is material that has antiquated language or antiquated perspectives. Uh, Little House on the Prairie is another example, like Roald Dahl, that's often cited as being material that has some very outdated views about Indigenous Americans. Those are the two broad categories that we see being challenged across North America right now. And I kind of want to pull a little bit more, if you can tell me about those seven claims that the OPL faced. What were they specifically trying to address? Do you, do you know off the top of your head? We had kind of a broad range of different concerns that clients raised as part of those seven challenges. So there were a couple where the concern was about racist content, a couple related to content that promoted hatred, that the the client who put in the challenge believed the content promoted hatred, a couple of challenges for age-inappropriate content, and that's a very common challenge category as well, one that we see um, across North America. And it can refer to anything from like, this isn't appropriate for a child because it has sexual content, or this isn't appropriate for a child because it has antiquated views, etc. And then there were a couple of challenges each for violent, inaccurate, or objectionable content. So objectionable being a really broad category, right? Mm-hmm. Some challenges included, if you're counting, that is exactly seven. But some of them like had multiple concerns about the same title. Um, so that's kind of what we saw in Ottawa. That's a bit of a grab bag of different categories. Nothing really jumped out. It wasn't like they were all related to one specific issue. Mm, okay, I see. And then um, why is this freedom to read, this this um, access to information, even stuff that we don't agree with, why is that important for Canadians, especially young Canadians? Even, even young folks, even folks who are under the legal age of adulthood, have rights under the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, right? So they have the right to access information that they might need, whether it's for school, for their own personal lives. They are undoubtedly hearing things on the schoolyard that are, I'm going to just guess, probably worse in many cases than the things you would see in a novel in the library. Um, But it's really important for everybody, whether they're a young person or an older adult even, to be engaging with really difficult topics and difficult conversations as much as they are able to, you know, respecting their own mental health. Um, But to kind of have the tools available in their toolbox to navigate complex topics and to engage with viewpoints that they might think are really disgusting or really dangerous or harmful or just wrong, right? 
that's part of what we call information literacy. And it's one of the things that we really champion at the public library, right? So having those tools to be able to navigate those conversations and those views in society equip you better for educational success, equip you better to be a member of a pluralist democracy, and just kind of equip you better to have Thanksgiving dinner with your family members, possibly, right? Because they might have very different views. We also know that, like, you know, there are certainly laws in Canada that relate to illegal content. And if a book is found to have violated those laws in Canada, it gets pulled. It most often gets pulled by the publisher before it gets pulled in a public library. But, you know, censoring material that is found to be legally acceptable, even if it is something that we really disagree with. Censorship in general most often targets marginalized voices, but a commitment to free expression means that we're protecting all views, even the ones that we find potentially personally very odious. Mm -hmm. And so you kind of mentioned earlier, but I just want to clarify, OPL's policy is that you'll only pull things off the shelf that aren't legal. Correct. Yeah. So we have a, a what we call a content services framework, which is a guiding document for how we add items to our collection in the first place. So it needs to meet a number of different criteria in the framework before it gets added. We don't add everything that is published. So, you know, that might include community demand, representation, critical reviews. You know, there are professional guidelines that we follow before something gets added, as well as community interest, right? And then once it's in there, it, it could be pulled because it falls out of favor or fashion, right? So items that were published in 1982 and that talk about Pluto being a planet and are no longer being borrowed by anybody, they're not going to stay forever, right? We're not an archive in that respect. So things might get pulled as part of our regular review process and discarded. Or, you know, if there is a lawsuit and someone is found to have violated the laws in Canada, that material would also get pulled. But as I said, that's very exceptional. And usually in instances like the two that I can think of in the 20th century history, it's often a letter from the publisher that comes first before a, a client complaint comes forward. Gotcha. Okay. And so falling at the center of this kind of uh, controversy, if I can call it that, of freedom to read, it's a lot of these uh, books that are progressive thinking that are helping people learn more about like social movements and issues that are taking place. But also these old books that we're talking about, I'm a fan of the classics and I'll be turning pages and then you read something that you're like, oh, I can't believe the author actually just said that. But um, when it comes to censoring these issues, what happens when we only choose stories that are convenient or scrubbed clean and sanitized? What happens when we only use those stories and histories to inform society? Yeah, I think, I mean, worst case scenario, right? We forget what that history was, right? We've essentially edited out the parts that we find uncomfortable or that we disagree with now. Um, so God forbid you're a researcher looking back at early 21st century discourse, you won't know what it was because you will, won't have access to material anymore um, that reflects the diversity of views. But, you know, as I sort of alluded to earlier on a more basic scale, if you're not seeing that content in a book, it's likely that there's at least one member of your community who still has those views, even though they may be kind of gross. And so, you know, being unable to engage with that person or address those views and say, no, that's wrong. And here's why, or I disagree with that. And here's why you won't necessarily have those coping mechanisms unless you've been able to kind of engage with that content on some basis. And, you know, again, getting back to the main point, it it just, it, it doesn't reflect reality, right? What we see in our library collections, what we see in public discourse is what represents um, everyone's views in society. So I think not reflecting that is, is doing everyone a disservice ultimately. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, so those were all the questions that I had for you today. I've, I've learned a lot about Freedom to Read Week and information literacy and the opportunities to learn through public discourse. And it's interesting to see how these kinds of conversations unfold in real life. I appreciate you taking the time to walk me through that today. Anytime, happy to be on and thanks for having me, Lauren. Thanks so much, Alexandra. Take care. And aside from having John Ibbotson and Lawrence Hill speak at Freedom to Read Week, the Ottawa Public Library also posted a video series to its website. There are eight short clips of English and French authors, journalists, and public figures. They speak about the importance of representation and being able to read queer, black, and disabled stories. In these videos, author Ivan Coyote addresses the rise of right-wing extremism. They point to groups organizing against women's rights, indigenous sovereignty, critical race theory, and the experiences of queer, trans, and non-binary people. The author says that witnessing the recent movement to erase queer and trans stories in public school systems under the guise of protecting children has been sobering for them. Coyote calls it a renewed call to action, underscoring the importance of supporting public libraries. Quote, because inconvenient voices, marginalized voices, oppressed voices must be protected and honored, end quote. Patsy Aldana, the publisher of Groundwood Books in Toronto, also speaks in the OPL's video series. She points to a book by Deborah Ellis, banned across Toronto public schools. The book, Three Wishes, Israeli and Palestinian Children Speak. For Aldana, this ban stems from the harmful belief that children shouldn't be exposed to Palestinian voices. Writer, activist, and psychotherapist Farsana Doctor echoes this concern. In the video series, she says those who speak out have faced shunning and violence to be kept quiet. She addresses the people who have been suspended from their jobs or lost them altogether for standing in solidarity with Palestine, even just for asking for a ceasefire. Ivan Coyote quotes Milan Kundera's Book of Laughter and Forgetting, saying the first step in liquidating a people is to erase its memory, destroy its books, its culture, its history. Then have somebody write new books, manufacture a new culture, invent a new history. Before long, that nation will begin to forget what it is and what it was. The struggle of man against power is the struggle of memory against fighting. This erasure is part of a divine obligation referenced by Benjamin Netanyahu in his continued assault on Gaza. Netanyahu cites Hebrew scriptures in which the people of God are told to blot out the memory of Amalek, the enemy of Hebrews and God. One documented way that the IDF has done this is by bulldozing cemeteries, desecrating the dead. Professor Norman Cornett says Netanyahu has identified Gazans, Hamas, and Palestinians with Amalek. I would say that the attack of the 7th of October 2023 served as a catalyst to default to the Bible. And I'll give you an example in the case of Benjamin Netanyahu. Mm. In the course of his speeches, he has referenced the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Hebrew Bible. And keeping in mind Torah, which is the holy book of Judaism actually means law. So this is very important. Why do you refer to the Bible? Because it's the law. In fact, it's divine law. So therefore it trumps human laws and they are now divinely instructed to blot out the memory of Amalek. And that not only justifies, because in every world religion, 
whether Judaism, whether Christianity or Islam, murder is the capital crime in all of those holy books. Therefore, you have to have divine, biblical or Quranic justification to kill, to carry out what otherwise is considered murder. And it's not simply to kill. The idea of blotting out the memory of Amalek is to eradicate, to exterminate. So it's very interesting in this paradigm, religion, culture, and politics, to see how holy scriptures, whether it be Torah, the Pentateuch, the Hebrew Bible, or whether it be the Quran, or whether it be the New Testament, the Christian scriptures, how these different political movements will draw inspiration from their holy scriptures to not only justify what they're doing militarily, but in fact, to sacralize what they're doing, to sanctify what they're doing, so that this becomes not simply allowed, permitted, it is our duty. We spoke about how religion is being weaponized and the vast atrocities that amount to what he calls religious terrorism. A member of Netanyahu's war cabinet declared that if by Ramadan, the hostages haven't been returned home, the fighting will continue everywhere, including Rafah. Cornette says using Ramadan as a deadline is quite intentional and discusses the two faces Benjamin Netanyahu has to present. One for the Israeli state to carry out total annihilation, and another to keep the international community at bay. Palestinians displaced by Israeli bombardments have crowded into Rafah, the territory's southernmost city. 1.5 million people were told they'd be safe there. Only now, Netanyahu says the assault on Rafah will go ahead regardless. They have thrown down the gauntlet. You cannot go into Rafah and carry out a bloodbath where untold numbers of civilians will suffer with no exit strategy. There must be an exit strategy for the civilians. So he's fought fighting a two-front war, politically with Israelis and internationally diplomatic with the world community. This recent announcement is a one-two punch from Netanyahu. Not only because it comes at Ramadan, but also because those 1.5 million have nowhere to go. He also points to the fact that October 7th fell on a Saturday, the Sabbath. Again, instances of weaponizing religion, according to the professor. What we're doing here when we talk about Ramadan and we're going to attack uh, the first day of Ramadan, this is basically when you touch a religion, someone's religion, you're touching what's dearest to them, what they hold dearest, what is most precious. Essentially, this war is not just about bullets, bombs. It's also psychological warfare because mm -hmm. these are what I call weapons of mass psychological destruction. When you're going to attack the first day of Ramadan, this is like a weapon of mass psychological destruction. These weapons of mass psychological destruction, he refers to, include the desecration of sacred values. Like bulldozed graves, desecrating death itself. 
something sacred in most religions. In Islam, washing the body and covering it with a sheet, often hands placed as if in prayer. And how many white sheets have we seen around dead bodies since the 7th of October, 2023? They're ubiquitous on the news now. And so the idea that you would desecrate even the dead, that is part of carrying out this divine mandate of blotting out the memory of Amalek. He also points to instances of sexual violence and rape as desecrating sexuality, another sacred component of religion. He says to profane the dead, to profane the female body through rape, essentially desecrates the human condition. Because they cannot exercise free will. Mm -hmm. They are totally surrounded. The tanks are outside the hospitals. The IDF are inside the clinics. They're blowing up the mosques. Netanyahu has continuously used religion to justify his violence in Gaza, and the humanitarian crisis is worsening. Thousands and thousands have died in what the International Court of Justice has described as a plausible case of genocide. The imminent offensive against Rafah is jarring for the international community, and Egypt is warning of catastrophic repercussions if Israel goes through with the attack on Rafah. Ramadan will be observed by over two million Muslims in Canada, and usually members of parliament are welcomed into mosques for this holy celebration. But the National Council of Canadian Muslims has released a letter asking MPs to condemn Israeli war crimes, call for an immediate ceasefire, and reinstate funding for UNRWA, among other conditions, before heading into a mosque for Ramadan. They write, quote, If you cannot publicly commit to all of the above, respectfully, we cannot provide you with a platform to address our congregations. Ramadan is about humanity, this Ramadan, more than ever, only those MPs who share in our commitment to humanity will be welcome to address us in our sacred spaces, end quote. This past Saturday marked two years since the start of the war in Ukraine. Since then, over 30,000 soldiers have died on each side, and over 10,000 innocent Ukrainian civilians have been killed in the crossfire. The anniversary comes pretty close after an interview between Vladimir Putin and Tucker Carlson. Putin spoke for two hours about why Russia is entitled to Ukraine's land and sovereignty. The interview served as Putin's official address to the West, but largely relied on a skewed version of history and egregious political posturing. Putin, like every world leader right now, sidestepped the actual reality of this war, which is that it is going nowhere. In an interview with The Economist in November, the commander-in-chief of Ukraine's armed forces, General Valery Zaluzny, admitted that the war is stuck at a stalemate. His comments sparked criticism from Ukraine's President Zelensky, who says he fired Zaluzny earlier this month. Meanwhile, Zelensky's been traveling to conferences around the world to gain international support for the war effort. But global leadership is hesitant to provide resources for a war with no clear path to victory. Just earlier this week, French President Emmanuel Macron suggested there might be a possibility of deploying Western troops in Ukraine. Immediately, NATO and other world leaders pointed out one clear message. That is not going to happen. In the United States, aid for Ukraine has turned into a tool of political leverage. 
A recent meeting with Joe Biden and congressional leaders highlighted this deadlock, particularly with Republicans not budging on their demands for increased U.S. border security. Both sides are blaming each other, bolstering Zaluzny's point that the war is stagnated. He warns that in the case of a long war, Russia will overpower Ukraine based on the sheer size of its population and economy. But 2024 is a landmark year that will dictate the future of this war. Putin is engaged in building strategic cooperation with Iran, which is a major opponent of the American military regime. And with Donald Trump poised to be the Republican candidate once again, the future of America's role in NATO is also up in the air. The situation in Ukraine mirrors the broader uncertainty in the West, where the reality of war is vastly different from narratives presented by politicians. While civilization is on the precipice of change, it's more important now than ever to understand actions over words and situations over rhetoric. For CHUO, I'm Maria Gunde. Mexico has the highest per capita consumption of bottled water worldwide, according to global nonprofit water.org. But how can this be understood in Canada, where only 90% of the population has bottled water as their main source of drinking water? Over the last month, people in Mexico City have seen their access to water restricted, in an effort to preserve the dangerously low levels of some of their main water sources. Mexico City gets its water from the Lerma and Cuzamala basins, as well as the aquifer of the Valley of Mexico. An aquifer is made of layers of sand and rock saturated with groundwater, which enters through the soil and is expelled to the surface through springs and wells. Mexico City was built on this aquifer, on top of a lake bed which was drained in the 17th century by the Spanish to prevent flooding. This forced the groundwater deeper, leaving the now dry lake bed to shrink and compact on itself, resulting in the sinking of Mexico City, an annual descent of 5 to 40 centimeters, according to data collected by Advancing Earth and Space Science. The heavy groundwater pumping has also made it impossible for the aquifer to recharge itself, since the urban demand for water is larger than what's naturally available. Although 60-70% to 70% of the city's water comes from this source, today's main problem lies in the Kutsamala system. This is a complex system of tunnels, pipelines, reservoirs, storage tanks, and a major treatment plant that transports water from the Kutsamala River to reduce the strain on the aquifer of the Valley of Mexico. Mexico's National Water Commission, CONAWA, reported at the beginning of February that the current water storage of the system was at almost 40% of its total capacity worryingly below the historical average of nearly 75% at this time of the year. This same organism calculated that, if the drought and lack of rain continue, the day zero for the Kutsamala system is to be expected on June 26th. Day zero is a term that was coined in the midst of the Cape Town water crisis back in 2018, and is used to refer to the day a place is no longer able to provide waters to its population. Last November, the Conaguan government agreed on reducing the water supply to its population to optimize the storage, but they were forced to cut the supply even more, to push back the date in which Kutsamala won't be able to pump any more water. This has resulted in a major shortage that has the 284 neighborhoods that make up the city receiving water by Tandeo, meaning that water is administered at a certain time for each neighborhood and is then cut off for the rest of the day. However, to get potable, drinking water, people are relying on water wagons, trucks that deliver water directly to their homes called pipas, and garrafones, which can be described as large jugs of water that you can find in the supermarket. As normal as it is in many parts of the world to drink tap water, in Mexico, 
unless people are sure that the water comes from a source which guarantees its purity, it's not recommended to do so, for fear of catching diseases like salmonella or bacterial infections like E. coli. Water from pipes, in particular, pose a risk from the lack of maintenance in the infrastructure. So far, there has not been an end date announced for the shortage in Mexico City. But the government hopes that with these measures, they are able to keep what is left in the Kutsamala system until the rain season starts in June. And tonight, CHUO's own Queerly Beloved is hosting a Pink Barbs extravaganza. Show hosts Mayor and Jackson are putting on the vibrant event at Tropical Resto Bar, sponsored by UO Pride. The event costs $5 at the door or free if you're a U Ottawa student or wearing school merch. Head down to Byrod Market at 11 p.m. for a whole lot of Nicki Minaj and Queerly Beloved. And that's it for this week's episode of The Mosaic. Thanks so much for tuning in. Music for The Mosaic is by Halizna. To listen to this episode and previous ones, go to chuo.fm slash podcasts. If you're interested in joining our news team, email news at chuo.fm. We'll see you next week, Thursday at 1 p.m. 